Welcome to the Daughters Project Podcast. We're so glad you're here. Join us this season as the sisters, along with Father Harrison Eyre, explore what it means to live with a sacramental worldview. You can find out more about our work at thedaughtersproject.com and on social media at Daughter St. Paul. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Daughters Project podcast. I am Sister Teresa Alethea, and I'm here with Sister Nancy Elselman and Father Harrison Eyre. And this is our last episode in this series of talking about Father Harrison's new book, Mysterion, The Revelatory Power of the Sacramental Worldview. And it's been it's been an exciting, fun, and interesting time. We've just had some really interesting conversations. Um, we've gone places I didn't expect us to and other places <laughs> that I totally did, like Sister Nancy talking about movies all the time. <laughs> and um, but it's been a lot of fun and and I'm really glad that you guys agreed to do this. Um yeah, good. so this is the last episode. So before we start, I I have an overheard in the convent story for y'all. It's a prayer related. I was just racking my brain to think of something, some funny story to tell about prayer. And then I remembered Sister Concetta, one of our older Italian nuns who has now passed away. She was actually quite like rigid and stern and the disciplinarian in her day. But uh, a lot of sisters shared that as she got older, she really kind of softened and became just like a big marshmallow. She was just so sweet to me. I mean, I remember the first time I visited, she she said, told me she was praying for my parents and then proceeded to give me a slobbery kiss on my cheek. And I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) thank you. Um, But so one day I was in our small chapel on the second floor. So we have we have a big chapel that's more like a church. And then we have a small chapel that sisters can go to that's nearer to their bedrooms. And so sometimes late at night, I would just go in there and I'd keep the lights off and I would just pray for a little while before I went to bed. And so I was in the dark, so I don't think Sister Concetta knew that I was there. But I, I saw her or I heard her kind of coming down the hallway with her walker, just creaking down the hallway. And she opens the door really wide and she goes, Good night, my sweet Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And I was at the corner just kind of cragging up. But that is, I just thought that was a good example of. I was there before too when she would do that. So cute. (laughs) It was the cutest thing. I was just like, that is cute. Something that I really liked in in your treatment, Father Harrison, of prayer was just the emphasis on relationship. Like we are in a relationship with God and prayer is about just kind of hanging out with him and spending time with him. And that was a reminder to me of just the casual, informal relationship that she had with Jesus that yeah. before she went to bed, she would just give him a bunch of kisses and then go back to her room. It reminds me of that little story about John the 23rd, where... Every night he would kneel on his pradia, he'd kind of pray in silence, and then he'd look up, he'd say, well, God, it's your church, I'm going to bed, right? Like, that's just that that ease of being with God. That's the key, right? Because that's, fa- like, that's what family life is like, right? You have that ease of being yourself. And I think that, like, in some ways, that statement of John the 23rd or Sister Concetta is, is a statement of their e- that prayer had brought them to an ease with God. And that's, uh, that's a sign of God's life in them. Mm-hmm. 
just informal. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, when we talk about the new evangelization, as John Paul II wrote, and and even going back to um, Paul VI's uh, document on evangelization in the modern world, it's like, how do people, so many people fall away from the church, or they just like, well, I, I don't know how to pray anymore, or nobody ever taught me. Um, I don't know if you remember that scene from the film Gravity, when uh, Sandra Bullock plays it, she's out in the middle of space and in the middle of nowhere, and she's like, you know, she hears some sound from someone up in 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 China or some area, and it's like just hears some. And she says, "Can you pray for me?" You know, I would do that for myself if someone had taught me. And it's mm. such an interesting reality that so many people don't even know how to pray. And and I just hear that from young adults as well. And I say the same thing. I say, you know, just being there with your best friend, just talk, just share everything that's on your heart, and start just sharing everything, but also to listen in silence, which is the hardest part <laughs> for people to be quiet and to listen in silence. And I think you bring that out a lot in your in your chapter too on prayer. It's like, how do we listen to God? And the reason, yeah, and I wanted to put that in the in the book for a couple of reasons. One, and, it, and a lot of the stuff at the end is a bit more like, how is this lived out? But again, I try to eschew, part of it's just my temperament. I hate pragmatism, as I said before, but, uh, you know, but to try and say this is something that grows spontaneously out of relationship, right? This And that this is a relationship we're always in. So that's really helpful because my sense, and it's, this is my experience as a pastor too. It's like the number one thing I notice is how much people don't know how to pray. This is not, and this is coming from someone who hears confessions, right? Like actually often, and I, I often catch people off guard. This is not breaking the seal. This is just saying something I do in confession is I always ask people, what's your prayer life like? Mm-hmm. A, to bring this to your examination of conscience, right? Um, but often it becomes the spur for a conversation. Yes. Either they'll just say what they've done always habitually, and that's a good thing too. I don't think that's something to be put down on, but I, I hear so often a lack of an intimacy in prayer. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a sign of a deep kind of catechetical work and formative work we need to do as a church mm-hmm. in this regard is to help teach people how to pray yeah. and the church in so many ways. Like, I mean, this is the one of the beautiful things about the church is that she has such a vast tradition of prayer. Yes. Right. And, and if we, if we have to like at the end, if we understand this whole idea that the sacramental worldview is this idea of the participation in the life of Christ, mm-hmm. that faith is sharing in Christ's vision of the world, then in a way prayer is something always available to us yeah. always we're always in Christ. And so there's always the opportunity for a communion with him. We just need to start leaning on what the church gives us in her tradition and just speaking to God to actually like let that reality kind of seep deeper inside and to like really kind of come out even more deeply in us. I love how you talk about both vocal prayer as well as contemplative prayer. And to not say that it's like one or the other and, and you know, we're not one way is good, one way is not, you know, no, it's all of it. And we doing, we're, we're kind of doing both um, sometimes simultaneously, you know, we may be praying the rosary, but we can be contemplative in our praying the rosary. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really wonderful. And bringing out that aspect of contemplative prayer is so important. Uh, we often don't, I, I think a lot of people like me don't think about that or don't think it's for them and they don't realize it. it's available to all of us. We all have that ability to be present yeah. to God and God's presence to us. I mean, that's what Thomas Merton says, right? It's the only thing to seek in contemplative prayer is God. <laughs> that's all mm-hmm. it's about. 
that reminds me actually of a story about John Paul II when he was doing, um, he was in Rome doing his doctoral studies and he went to France. I think he was checking out like the worker priest movement or something like that. Anyways, they were in the subway in Paris and his priest friend just looks over to him and he just says to him, oh man, it's so na- noisy. Like, and like, cause I think John Paul II is like, um, I, I, I'm forgetting all the story, but it's, he's like, what a horrible, this is like, oh, this is so noisy. This is like, oh, there's too many people. It's so crowded. And John Paul II and Carol Voitier just looks at him and says, isn't it a great place to pray? Right? <laughs> like, cause that was his contemplative sense, right? That every situation, I mean, this is his John of the Cross rooted in prayerness there, but it, it's, he always sought an opportunity for contemplation to reflect mm-hmm. on the presence of God and on the gift of being and on the gift of existence. And he always saw that as an opportunity. Everything was an opportunity for that. Nothing was an obstacle. And, and that's an ad. I mean, and he, that's in his younger years. That's in his like early thirties. I mean, like, I wish I had that, you know, it's uh, I hear that story. I heard that story. I'm like, man, that, what a great idea. But it's like, that's the idea. It's like, everything's an opportunity for contemplation to reflect on God and to reflect on the mystery of his creation and to reflect on the beauty of his salvation. But we need to just make the small little effort to respond to that gift. Yes. And that's a real like sacramental worldview of looking at prayer, because I think sometimes um, at least I've seen sometimes there's this emphasis on contemplation over vocal prayer or over the rosary or over things that use material things and use the mediation of words and things like that. But I think you make a really good point in in. Um, in your book that we're embodied creatures and we were meant to pray with the help of other things, with the help of words, with the help of beads, mm-hmm. with the help of, and that doesn't mean that, um, w- that we don't spend time in quiet prayer without anything. But, mm-hmm. but I do think sometimes that emphasis on one over the other, kind of the disdain for using material things can come from a lack of understanding of the sacramental worldview. And it, it, that's because I find it's often that just because like, it's true, contemplation is the highest form of prayer we can do, but it's also an infused gift mm-hmm. from God, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not something you do on your own. It's right. something God gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, And so we have this tendency to think that because something is higher and quote unquote greater, therefore it's in competition with the lower. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and But like, I think of someone again, like John Paul II, who was a man of incredibly deep contemplation. I mean, again, another story about him is that he would probably be in prayer for about two hours every morning in his chapel, prostrate on the ground. People would hear him like groaning in the Holy Spirit type of thing in, in the chapel. But he also loved his rosary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he he loved the simple devotions that he grew up with. They weren't in competition with each other because they're not meant to be. They're meant to feed. Like it's it, it just because something's higher and greater doesn't mean it destroys the Lord. This is and for me this always comes from a, a principle of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man, but his divinity never overwhelms or destroys his humanity and his humanity never limits his divinity. And so if God's, if Jesus's human and divine natures aren't in competition with each other, then the higher parts of their life of prayer aren't in competition with the lower. And so we have to kind of remove that mentality that just because something's greater doesn't mean uh, we, sh- we shouldn't or ought never to do the, the lower thing. It's just, it's different things for different times. Mm-hmm. 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 And in fact, we need the lower to do the higher in some sense that just. Yeah. Like sometimes when I'm trying to do maybe at least if not contemplative, or at least like that quiet meditation, mm-hmm. I sometimes just break out my rosary beads mm-hmm. and just like, just put my fingers over them for, and I'm not even saying anything, or I might just be saying like Jesus's name over and over again, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's not to, it's not, I'm not trying to be devotional at the moment. I'm just trying to, cause I got ADHD. I have a hard time staying focused it helps bring the focus in. I'm dealing with the fact of my body and my embodiedness and, and the 
strengths and weaknesses that come with that and using something to aid me in meditation, in contemplation. Mm -hmm. And that's necessary. Mm -hmm. And it's not a bad thing. It's okay to have a crutch. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. But I like how you also emphasize that, you know, the, the value of the liturgy in our prayer life. It's yes, we can go stand on a mountaintop and say, thank you, Jesus. And that is a beautiful, beautiful prayer, but that doesn't take the place of the liturgy in our lives and the gift of coming together to receive the grace of God in Christ in the Eucharist. I mean, I think that sometimes that, that can be misunderstood. And we, we think, oh, I don't need uh, institutional religion to tell me how to pray. I can just be there with God. True, you can just be there with God, but there is a value in us coming together as a community and in communion with one another and with Christ. Yeah, and even how other people help to lead us to prayer in some way. I know that when I pray with scripture in a group of sisters, I am just always astounded at how, how God speaks to them. It's always very surprising and interesting, and I learn about God through how God communicates to them. Um, but also, I think sometimes we deny our embodiedness and mediation by, by wanting to have this like personal relationship with God that's just us. So I, I've, I, there've, when I first entered the convent, I would go to chapel and I would always want to be alone and I would never be alone. Someone would always come banging in or like making noise and and I would get so irritated. I'd be like, Jesus, I'm just trying to have some alone time with you. But after a while, I really came to the realization that he was doing that on purpose. It was like a message from him to me. Like, this is not just about you and me. This is a communal thing. You have joined a community. You haven't just joined like an empty chapel to be with me. <laughs> but, but Sister Teresa, you're so extroverted. I mean, why I wouldn't you like being around other people? <laughs> I, know, I know all the introverts listening are like, oh, amen, Sister <laughs> Know what you're talking about. I mean, I get irritated when people sit too close to me in chapel. Right. So. Well, for me, when I'm in chapel, I see another person like, woohoo, yeah, there's another person in front of me. This is great. I just cannot relate. <laughs> but no, but it's like, but I think that's, that's a great point because it's like, yeah, it's Jesus kind of using a bit of a moment to teach you a lesson. Because like, even when, even when there's hermits in the church, they're never alone in their prayer. Like the mass is the work of the whole church. The whole church is present in that moment. And, and it, well, sorry, the work of Christ through the whole church, I should say. Um, and, and so even when you are alone, you're not alone, right? Mm -hmm. like, like Pope Francis loves, you know, loves to use this phrase, and it's actually a continuation of a theme from Pope Benedict and Space Salvi that no one's saved alone. Right. Right. So if we're not saved alone, we don't pray alone. Right? Yeah, right. Prayer is part of the path towards salvation. So we're not, if we can't be saved alone, like we need the communion of the church to be saved. Then it's the same thing with prayer. And like, I, I still remember like one of the things I miss about seminary is the communal praying of the liturgy of the hours. Mm -hmm. Like I, mm -hmm. I remember, like I, I miss that. I really miss that. It, and it becomes, because by myself, it becomes very easy to speed through, yes. to mm -hmm. go to, through it too quickly. I've got another appointment. I only got six minutes for evening prayer, mm -hmm. right? Or whatever, right? While, while when you're praying it as a community, there, that communal element aids each other in a more, um, uh, maybe not slower is not the right, but a better paced praying. Mm -hmm. And so you have the aid of your, of your brother seminarians and seminary when you're praying this, I'm sure you guys have this in the convent where, because we're all praying together, it actually helps us enter more deeply into the moment of prayer in that liturgy. And that's a good thing. It's why we need that community. And so like, yeah, even when we're in our private devotions, this it's like, I guess one of the points I'm trying to make in the book 
un, like intentionally but not directly is this idea that individualism in our spiritual life just has to go away. Mm-hmm. There is something mm-hmm. personal and we are individuals, but we're only in, we are only that in communion with the church and in living the life with the whole church. Mm-hmm. And I think that's your call when you say that is that that's our call to discipleship. It's not a discipleship that's just me and Jesus. I'm not, I'm the only one following him, but it's all of us. And, and we're, con- we're in the community, just like the apostles. They had to learn to live and work together. <laughs> and, oh my and, gosh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they're right. Probably, I love, you know, I don't know if anybody's watched The Chosen, but it's kind of an interesting little nuances and in how the apostles and their personalities and how Matthew and Peter just can't stand each other. It's great, you know, but then it, but they learn, they have to learn. And Jesus says, you know, come on, Peter, take Matthew with you. And he's like, oh, brother. <laughs> I like the constant bickering yeah. in that show. I'm just like, that's so realistic. Oh, real. yeah. They had to yeah. learn that. And we, too, as disciples, are, are in communion with others. We're not separate. Just our one little disciple, you know, in the world. Even though community can be so irritating <laughs> and difficult. No, no, no. We all know that community life among sisters is perfect. It's perfect. And, there's, and perfect. everyone lives in harmony. And everyone lives in harmony. And there is no division or frustrations or anything, right? Uh, no, there's a reason Blessed James Alberione said your greatest penance is community. I have a feeling he was an introvert. But just think about a whole bunch of women living together. That's really a miracle that it actually works, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a grace of God. <laughs> Especially if you have to live with Sister Helena. Real, real <laughs> penance. Real penance. <laughs> she actually actually is a delight. <laughs> I know. She's a sweetheart. She's a sweetheart. Yeah, Sorry, I, I cut you off, sister. Just tease yeah. her and that's the best thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, do, I do think that community can lose its... Um, where you, you, it it can lose you can lose your sense of of why it is good for us to be in community if we're focusing purely on the natural and we're not able to see the supernatural reality. I, one time I was just complaining and complaining to this priest about community life, and he said to me, "I think you're just seeing this on a purely natural level, and community life is going to be very miserable for you if you're going to do that for a long time." And I remember thinking about that afterwards and thinking, "Oh, yeah." I mean, this is not a, this is a very unusual way of living and only possible through grace. And um, yeah, God, God gives us the grace to do that. But it can be difficult when you're like, even for lay people in parishes, when they go to a parish. And I I mean, it's, it's very difficult to be in communion with other people who you don't know. And God put you all together, but you just wonder like how you would never be spending time with this person (laughs) otherwise. Tribing a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> Even in families. I, that's what I talk yeah. when I talk to presentations and I share about this sense of community. I say, even in, in, in families or the same in religious communities, is that, you know, there's some little things that just irritate us. Like, no matter what I say or how many times I say it, there are always dirty dishes in the sink, even though the dishwasher is empty. And, you know, and I say this to people and they're all like, the ladies are all like, yes, exactly. What's the point to this? And I said, we're human beings. <laughs> we are human beings. Yeah. yeah. I, I, was, I was actually preaching about this the other day, just about parish life. It's really like, I really believe that the image of a family really is perhaps, I'd say at least for the contemporary world, 
the most apt analogy for a parish mm -hmm. because it's mm -hmm. like you don't choose family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> family chooses you, right? And that you're formed to live with each other's strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. um, and if that is what, and, if, and, and yes, and sometimes there are strong arguments and disagreements and hurts, but in the end, you still love and support each other, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case in family, like I really believe like that's the way parish life and church life in general ought to be. Like, it, you know, it, it's why I get like really frustrated by a lot of the debates around the church's life. These aren't, they're coming almost sometimes I find like from a political motive rather than a fa familial motive, mm -hmm. right? Which comes from a love and care for the other. Sometimes the way some people speak their words in the church come from no place of love. Like that's not discipleship. Mm -hmm. That's not participating in the life of the church. Discipleship really means living the life of a family, but in that graced sense, like you're saying, sister, that community is not just this um, natural thing. It's some, there's something supernaturally communicated through mm -hmm. this. The reason, yes, the church is structured different than the world because grace has structured human life differently now. And so that means like we're going to live a little bit differently mm -hmm. and we need to be willing to accept that, embrace that. Because I mean, imagine if parishioners in a parish, for example, if we all live life, myself as a pastor, parishioners as, as the same way as a family. Well, you're going to have healthy disagreement, but you're still going to love one another. Right. And you know that you're, you're, we're all trying to do the best for each other. Man, parishes would be on fire. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. I think a lot of people in the modern experience have broken experiences of family, so that that inhibits them from understanding how to love people in the difficulty. But also, you make the point in your chapter on Christian discipleship that we have to accept suffering and death, and those are two very difficult things to accept. And I think especially when you're trying to be in communion with others, it's a suffering, just like it's a suffering to be in a family with all these and to have children and and people are making choices not to not to have children um and not to live this family uh reality because i think we don't have a, a framework from which to see the value in the suffering the real suffering that it causes parents to have children i mean it's not all wonderful it's very very difficult to raise children it's very difficult to be married mm -hmm. I don't know if it, I don't think the modern worldview gives people a framework from which to find meaning in that suffering. And that's something that you talk about a lot very well. I, yeah, it's a favorite topic of mine. And this is, and it's, it, there is some irony there because I mean, like everyone else, I also hate suffering. Yeah. What actually reminds me of, I don't know if you've seen that clip of Stephen Colbert being interviewed by, um, what's his name now? Anderson from uh, CNN. Anderson. Um, Anderson Cooper, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And he has this quote where he says, what punishments are not gifts from God? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can see Anderson Cooper like tearing up as he gives the explanation of it. Like it's really a powerful, for me actually, I'm like, it, it, it's gotten trending so often on Twitter whenever, every time it pops up mm -hmm. and you just can't help but think like, man, what actually a powerful moment of evangelizing here really mm -hmm. because for someone like Stephen Colbert he had a suffering he lost I believe his dad and a couple of his siblings to a plane crash or something like that when he was quite young but he said but because of that I now have empathy for people who have unexpected loss mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that not a gift right and that I exist and that suffering is a part of life well regardless of the suffering I still exist isn't that a gift mm -hmm. so he goes of course I have to see these I, do I want them no but they come, and so I need to see them as a gift because existence is a gift. I'm like, yeah, that that like, 
that is there's nothing more like that's one of the most catholic things i've seen in the popular culture in the longest time and he's not being out there like trying to proselytize he's just sharing his own view of suffering he's sharing his sacramental right view right he is yeah and 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 i think that's it it's like there's so there's a few things with that it's like one is we have a fear of suffering that is i would call i would say unhealthy because we've been formed to clinicize suffering so much um the and the pro and i man i gotta be careful not to go off on too many tangents because it's actually it's something i've been thinking about a lot lately and I, I like to say that modernity has reduced desire so that we don't suffer, mm-hmm. right? So there's that Buddhist sense that suffering comes from desire, right? And it's true. I don't think Buddhists are wrong there. And the Buddhist tradition, though, says, well, well then we have to reduce desire, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's something modernity has done. You're always going to be fed. You're never going to lack. You're never not going to have anything. Well, that's fine. But now we actually don't really know how to have joy or life because we don't experience everything as a gift. And so because of that, we now have a deep fear of suffering because in a way we have a deep fear of desiring. And I think that's deeply inhuman. Mm-hmm. And that that does scare me. And I think it's an area where the if you will the culture has overly encroached on the life of the church in this regard so that we don't embrace suffering but rather try to minimize it get rid of it. I'm not trying to say like we shouldn't do things to treat suffering or anything like that. At the heart of the church's mission is Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the cross. We share in Christ's sufferings for the sake of the world. Like uh, We make up what is lacking the sufferings of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whoa, like what a phrase, right? And that's yeah. when the church can actually start to do this and do this well. I think that becomes the greatest means of our, not only of our internal cohesion and communion, because we start to have that touch point. We all suffer. This is something we all have. We're all weak. But it also becomes the impetus for evangelization to a world that, while it tries to reduce and repress desire, it just comes out in different ways. And so we experience like this total nothingness in our lives nowadays, Mm -hmm. because we don't have any sense of meaning anymore. And so the church has to say like, no, no, we suffer this with you. Yes. We really do. And we want to enter into this with you. Mm-hmm. And we actually, like, we go through the same thing ourselves. Yeah. We we actually had a sister pass away who was in her 60s from cancer. And to me, she was an example of, of facing suffering. And yet she had the will to live. She wanted to live. She did every treatment she could, but nothing was working. And in her communication, she's a very private person. But in her communications with the community, she would share and say, but I am ready to do the Lord's will. I'm ready to do whatever he wants of me. And her way of dying was an example of how to live is like that surrender. Even though it wasn't what she wanted, she wanted to live, but she surrendered so beautifully. It was a great example for me. And even if the rest of the world doesn't see it, that very grace of her suffering has has given new life and given joy to those around her and to the and to the whole church. Uh, so yeah. it, it was a great example for me of how to how to suffer well, how to accept suffering, and how to live with Christ in the suffering. Yeah, for me too. She was in the community that I'm in currently, and we've just always all been very moved by 
her acceptance of of death and she was so full of life and energy she she ran our shipping department mm -hmm. basically by herself and the last time i saw her in the shipping department i said oh sister joe i'm so happy to see you here and she said yep i'm not dead yet <laughs> <laughs> she kind of had that very dry sense of humor <laughs> It's a gift because in the end, the suffering is cruciform, mm -hmm. right? We often, mm -hmm. like, I think that's the thing. It's actually not meant to be suffering in a way. It is, but it's, that's actually not its primary purpose. Its primary purpose is agapic love, mm -hmm. the offering of oneself for the other. Like when we talk about the centrality of the cross, it, the centrality is not suffer as much as humanly possible, but it's be the means of revealing this radical agapic love. Yeah, and that often means embracing suffering, even sometimes when it's unjust yeah. or whatever. But saying, "I'm going to embrace this uh, for the life of of the world and for the life of the church." I, I was reading something yesterday, and they say like uh, it was this talk about like how the saint has to not just suffer; it doesn't just bring about suffering because of their sanctity, but that in their sanctity they suffer for the sins of the members of the church. Yes, and we got to do that too, like. And like that, that really hit me when I was reading. It was, it's been like not leaving my head since I heard it, but because that's like, but that's all part of that mystery of the participation. That that's the mystery of the cross. Like that's the whole point of this is to say like this is all Christ working His life, death, and resurrection out in you. What He did once for all in history, He now makes universal through the church for you to enter into. The right. question is, will you accept the invitation to His way? Are surrendering in love, just like this sister who died of cancer. I think it was really an example of love. And like you said, it's, um, you know, that is the sacramental perspective is that we're making the love of God visible by our very voice of, of living love, even in the midst of suffering and choosing love in the midst of pain. And uh, that's what she did. And that's what she's an example of for, for me. And I know there's many people like that, that, that can be an example to us. Um, I, I just remember meeting this uh, homeless man on the corner of the street and I was driving at, at a stoplight and uh, I stopped at the red, the red light and he, it was around Christmas time or right before Christmas. And he said to me, so I, you know, I said, hello, um, how are you? Um, and I gave him whatever I had. And then he says to me, I am blessed. I am blessed and I am happy. And, you know, I, and I just said, well, I, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I'm praying for you. I hope you have a blessed Christmas and God bless you. And he says, and you have a very Merry Christmas too. And God bless you, sister. Thank you so much. I'll pray for you. And I said, well, thank you. And I drove away and I was just thinking, you know, that was the best Christmas gift I got. <laughs> yeah. was this, this, and I was looking at him and he, I, he was just so happy. Even though he was homeless, he was happy. He says, I am so blessed. And, you know, that's the joy. That's the sacramental vision for the world that we need. We need this ex, uh, example of love and joy and generosity. And that's what speaks to people. That's what speaks to people the most. Uh, an instance example of the everydayness of our lives. And there's no other pathway to joy. Like, we can't just avoid the suffering and expect to find true, deep, profound joy mm -hmm. in the same way. It, it, it has to go through suffering. And I think that that's why it's so um, striking to us when people are deeply suffering, but also joyful, because mm -hmm. it's 
it's it's paradoxical and strange um, and unexpected because we just are so focused on avoiding suffering, thinking that's what's going to make us ultimately happy. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. Nope. Because if it's if it's worth loving, it's worth suffering for. Mm-hmm. So as we wrap up, I just want to give our our listeners like. I know you hate practical tips, but like, not practical tips, but. <laughs> well, not against someone... the practical, but you know, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But if someone's listening and thinking, you know, I just, this is great. I've loved this conversation, but then how do I apply this in my life? Like what's one, one thing that someone could, could start doing besides reading your book um, that would help them to understand the sacramental worldview and really apply it in their lives and to identify ways that maybe they're thinking in an unhealthy or off way about their prayer life or their um, family life or whatever. Well, there's a I'm going to give, well, I'm not going to give one. I'm going to give a couple because like, you know, depending on people's state of life, I guess, right? Um, like for a family, I think one of the best things to do is simply to pray together. But encourage in that time of prayer, time for silence, right? Yes, the devotions, especially with young kids, I get it. Uh, it, it helps keep everything on track. But even if it's just a minute, what, what is it that we want to pray for? Give word to it. Now, okay, let's pray for that in the silence of our heart and listen to Jesus for a response. You're going to do so much to teach your children, especially how to listen and to respond in, and you're going to inculcate in them this natural speaking and receiving of prayer. I think if you, if that can happen, man, like you're already way ahead of the game. I know families who do that and it's amazing to be a part of. And listen, yeah, some of the kids, they're still going to be around like playing with their Legos or whatever. And that's fine. Like that's part of yeah. the messiness of family life. Like that's part, but Christ is still working his grace there. And though the child might not be participating in that moment, they see it. They see it and they know and that they know that they're still loved, despite the fact that because they're one and a half, they can't concentrate on this right now. And here's the other thing, because like especially when they're young, they're going to want to do it eventually because everyone else is doing it. Right. So just something simple like that. But if you don't have a family, I think first is just hang an icon in your house and, and pray with it. That's one way. Um, icons, I think, are, are beautiful ways of, of facilitating prayer. But we mentioned in the book, I believe, uh, two forms of praying that I think especially emphasize this, and it's Lectio Divina. Because what is it happening? But God speaking to you through his church in the Bible right now. That makes God's word alive and active. It's not just a dead text that's supposed to be investigated for historical purposes. It's something living through which Christ is going to talk to you right now. Or the idea of like Ignatian imaginative prayer, where you put yourself in those biblical scenes, which is really a Lectio Divina with the imagination. Um, you know, one of those forms really helps really, I find and view this myself. So, and, and, and then, you know, finally, like if, if you're a priest or, or you're, you're thinking, what can we do in our parish, help encourage and support your priests when they want to do things to help support this liturgically, you know, um, we, 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 we all know all the experimentation stuff that happened in the past, but like the second Vatican council has some very beautiful teachings about liturgy that I think has still been not really, um, lived out yet. And I talk about some suggestions in the book, but I'll leave that as a surprise for now. But I just think if your priest is trying to do some liturgical changes to be more in in line with the tradition and with what the council teaches us to help inculcate this, that is really important. 
And I think it's really worth uh, supporting them on those. And I, I'd like to just say too, on the sacramental worldview is is not only in reference to liturgy, and as you mentioned in right. your book too, it's also the symbols and signs are central to our, our life culturally and artistically. So I'm going to add one more aspect to that about our world of entertainment. Of course, mm -hmm. um, if you want to add another form of prayer, do cinema divina, praying with the scripture and a film. And then you can create, you can have that integration of Lexio Divina, but with, with film. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit too about that, that sense of, of a sacramental worldview in relation to our entertainment. Um, you know, what this gives us, the symbols and signs give us a way of seeing deeply into the culture's art and artifacts. And like in film, for example, uh, John Krasinski's film, A Quiet Place 2. And uh, if you've seen it, it is fabulous, just like A Quiet Place for the first one. But in it, you think about what is the symbolism present in this film? He's Catholic, by the way, so he's got a lot of sacramental perspective in this. But mm. the silence in the film, so it's really a story about aliens who have no vision, but who um, are hypersensitive to sound. And so they attack human beings uh, through the sounds they make, right? So, and one family learned how to survive because they learned sign language because their oldest daughter is deaf. And it's a really interesting story about what is silence? And silence, one can truly listen more attentively. That's the symbol of silence in the film. And, and so they become more aware also of the spiritual. It's a symbol of prayer, really, even in the story. Um, but the one also who has a disability, the older daughter, um, she ends up being the one who overcomes challenges and helps everyone else, you know, to when everyone else wants to give up, she keeps persevering. Even though we see, they may see a disability as a weakness, in this film, it's a symbol of strength and of hope. And so we begin to see even our culture differently when we take on a sacramental worldview. And, and I think you bring that out slightly. And I know you talk about different movies in this. Uh, I do it all the time. So it's like my whole perspective. And that's, that's even praying with film, like Cinema Divina, is to notice those symbols and signs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about you, Sister Teresa? I, I do think that it is helpful to in understanding the sacramental worldview to um, understand something that you point out in in your conclusion that it's uh, that the sacraments are not just about the seven sacraments and I think just exploring what that means and um, you know even reading the catechism in terms of that it would be helpful to people because I think we do limit our our vision of of the sacraments to the seven sacraments so. That's just, that's more like a teaser to your book. I think people should read it. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we need a sacramental worldview more than ever. Amen. So. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I know it's funny. It's like Sister Nancy's like, oh, if I, I would talk about movies all the time. Right now, I'm kind of similar, except I would talk about mediation all the time. This is where my okay. head's at lately. It's like, oh, I think it's, everything's mediation. That's mediation. Right. Mediation everywhere. All connected. <laughs> sacramental is mediation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So um, I just want to thank you, Sister Nancy. You introduced yourself at the beginning, but um, she runs our PCMS, which is the Pauline Center for Media Studies. So if you're looking for resources or articles 
um, about movies or just media in general, you can find her. Do, what is your website? Could you share that? BeMediaMindful.org. That's BeMediaMindful.org. And I'm just really thankful to her for taking the time out for this um, series of podcast episodes. And of course, Father Harrison, thank you very much for taking the time to do no this. Problem. And I hope that all of our listeners have gotten a lot out of it, even if you don't read the book, but you should. But even if you don't, I really <laughs> think I I think we had discussions that are going to be helpful to people either way. So I'm really I'm really glad that we were able to do this. Yeah, I mean, you have to order um, the book anyways, though, because you got to have a peacock on your shelf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Just the just just the design on the cover exactly. and and the interior is just going to be amazing to people. So yeah, I'm just really excited about it. So, Father Harrison, could you end in a prayer and maybe give everyone a blessing? Sure. Yeah, I'll we'll do uh, the Aaronite blessing. It's my favorite uh, one to do. So, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you all. We'll see you in our next season. And I'm not actually sure what the topic is going to be, but we'll keep you all updated through social media and on Patreon. God bless God you. God bless you. God bless. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is a fruit of the Daughters Project. This initiative of the Daughters of St. Paul to spread the gospel online is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. Consider joining us in our mission by contributing to Patreon today. You can find us at thedaughtersproject.com and on social media at Daughter St. Paul. God bless you.